Welcome to Inside the Hive. It's Joe Hagen here with Emily Jane Fox. Hello, hello. Jane. Hello, hello. I called you by your middle name, Emily That's Jane cool. Fox. You can call me whatever you want to call me. Um, my preferred co-host. We are here today I've in made the middle it. of summer. We don't know what's going to happen. If you're a Joe Biden fan, you are cautiously optimistic. If you're a Trump fan, you don't really care what happens because you just always believe in Trump. That's right. That feels about right. I'm, I, I feel like um, my sister called me this morning. We were talking and she said to me, do you think Biden's going to win? And I had no real answer for her. Uh, I, I think I'm always very cautious about predicting anything and I'm very careful about my opinions even in conversations with my sister. But uh, I don't know. I have no idea what's going to happen. I think that uh, I don't fully trust the polls as you and I talk about all the time because we've been jilted in the past by, by polling and um, I definitely don't trust national polls. I just think that you have a lot of people who don't answer honestly to these questions about whether or not they would support Trump. And I think um, a part of that is because his actions just continue to get crazier and crazier. If you did support him, I don't, I understand why you wouldn't answer honestly about why you were not going to vote for him or going to vote for him in November. Paranoia is our friend. You know, we have to take the won't get fooled again strategy in which we do not trust any optimistic information. Act as if you're going to lose. I mean, this is what David Pluff was saying even a few months ago. You know, in these battleground states, no matter where you see the numbers, just assume that it's that he's 10 points higher than you think he is. Mm. We're talk- and I've been thinking a lot about, you know, just to give us a little bat- back padding here, we've been covering a lot of the things that people need to know on this podcast. Last week, you had this great interview with Randy Weingarten about this back to school thing, which Trump is using as a kind of inflection point about, you know, what, where he wants to, uh, you know, grab energy politically. Before, can we just talk about for a second? Yeah. I want you to continue, but can we just talk about how dumb the inflection points are right now? Yeah. School <laughs> is not political. Right. Goya beans, not political. These are the dumbest inflection points of all time. Anyway, continue. Well, and I I totally agree with you. But I just saw uh, news over the transom today that the new uh, Trump-appointed postmaster general is at warning of mail delays due to cost-cutting that they're doing. And a few, mm. epi- a few episodes back, we had Mark Elias of the DNC on here talking about just this. He said, pay attention to this new appointee. He's going to redistribute the money around the postal system uh, to possibly suppress the mail-in vote, which is like, you know, exactly what uh, needs to happen, but that Trump has been pushing back against saying it's mail fraud or it's going to be a voting fraud. What do you know? Yeah, what do you know? So this is the kind of paranoia I'm talking about. Keep your eyes on the ball, people who don't want to lose again to, you know, this man who, for all intents and purposes, is a raving maniac. So, well, this sounds very swampy. Which it sounds very swampy. This let's let's talk about the swamp. It brings us to one of the swampiest things I could imagine, and that is Congress. And we have a very exciting thing happening on this week's episode of Inside the Hive. We have a preview of a documentary that looks awesome. I can't wait to watch it. It's called 
aptly The Swamp. It's going to be premiering on HBO next month, and we're going to get a sneak peek here on The Hive. It's, it's, it's airing here first. Yes, yeah, stay tuned. Keep listening. We're going to have an interview in a moment with John Weaver, the veteran political consultant, formerly of the, with the GOP, uh, now a part of the Lincoln Project. Yes, the Lincoln Project. As soon as I say that, those words. That Lincoln Project, yes. Yes, you know what I'm talking about, those amazing ads, you know, the, the paranoid whispering ads to drive Trump completely insane. You know, it's worked this week. Uh, the Lincoln Project did an advertisement that basically said that um, Brad Parscale, who was, who was the former campaign manager, was making money off of Trump, which... I say all the time is one of the surefire ways to really anger our president is is if if you make money off of him, he just cannot stand it. And so this Lincoln Project ad made that point very clearly. And we learned in the middle of this week that Brad is out. He's been demoted. Well, he's not out. He's been demoted, which is worse than being fired, in my opinion. Wouldn't you love to have been in on the call when Jared Kushner informed him? That is one way to get fired. That is one way. <sighs> way to or demoted i'm sorry it's the same thing in this instance yeah. it's very I'm sure he feels fired he feels fired well and so these guys the trump administration one of their main campaign uh you know kind of precepts was that they were going to drain the swamp right and of course they are just a new and more hideous version of the swamp uh so wait for this uh hbo trailer that we're going to premiere right here on inside the hive um i have to say just opens when you see the visual version uh, with the hideous mug of, of Matt Gates, the Florida congressman who is certainly vying to be some kind of, you know, uh, Trumpist 2.0 in the hideous future that he envisions. Swamp King. He's a swamp king. Uh, so today we're all in. We're going deep inside the Washington machine. John Weaver, political consultant, involved with the McCain campaign as of old and uh, antagonist to Karl Rove and all kinds of uh, intra-Republican fighting that now seems positively um, sweet compared to the current iteration of the GOP. And we'll learn about the Lincoln Project and what it is they are doing and how that relates to Joe Biden and how that relates to the swamp. And hopefully all this information will make you even more paranoid and don't get too optimistic. You're going to have to keep fighting if you want to win this thing. It's everything I can want to know. Let's get to it. Let's do it. John Weaver, welcome to Inside the Hive. Great to have you here. Good to be with you, Joe. Love to be with you. <laughs> um, the Lincoln Project, everybody's talking about it. It's making these incredible ads. Um, uh, it's been started with you, George Conway, Rick Wilson, Steve Schmidt, anybody that's on Twitter is familiar with these people, like cable TV, some of the most eloquent never-Trumpers that we know. Um, can you just give me a little quick backstory about how it is this project came together? Um, I thought it sprang out of nowhere, but evidently it's been in the hopper for for a while now. Maybe you can just tell me the, the, the quick story. Sure, Joe. We, we almost started this two years ago. Uh, myself and Steve and, and Rick and, and Reed, but we kept waiting for somebody of some standing. We we were hoping that a governor or a senator or someone that could actually, in our minds, rally 
uh, elements within the party and among independent voters would do this, that person on a white charger never showed up. And, and so in September, I convened a call and I just said, look, it's not happening. Nobody's coming and doing this. And, you know, we thought can four political consultants who have really kind of at the end of their run um, do this. It, it would be akin to like bail bondsmen trying to save the rule of law. Right. So yeah. in the minds of some people. So we but we decided, look, we need to get into the marketplace. We need to do it. We've been involved with conservative or Republican politics. And we go to these events where people are wringing their hands about uh, what Trump is doing to the country or the Constitution or disrespecting the rule of law. But they, they write op-eds or put out white papers or leak to the press if they're unhappy. But if we had a candidate, we would just jump into the fray and start competing. And that's what we decided to do. And so that's yeah. the story. Well, it's like a uh, kind of a, you know, to use a, a rock analogy, a, a kind of a super group of political consultants. I mean, you guys have all been involved in kind of what some people call the dark arts of uh, Republican uh, political campaigning and consulting. You know about negative ads and you guys have been making some amazing ones. You know, the, the ad with people uh around Trump whispering to him in a paranoid way. You have this amazing ad that I, is per, my personal favorite, um, you know, remember their names, the names of Lindsey Graham and S- Susan Collins, people who have sold their souls out and allied themselves with Trump. And, you know, these are very powerful ads, but, um, but they, I've been wondering what the objective of them is. Like they seem specifically tailored to get into Trump's head as if they are ads made to um, kind of uh, pierce his skin and drive him nuts. And I wondered, is that true? Is that the, um, you know, ultimately what the thrust of these ads is about? Um, look, we have, we have multiple targets. Uh, we we want to move Republican uh women and men in the suburbs and Republican voters in uh, the exurbs and rural areas and independent voters to the Democratic column. And so we have an effort at that. That's not as sexy as driving the president crazy, although it's admittedly a short drive. But look, we we purposefully do these things because we hear from people that leak to us from inside the White House, the campaign, about how easy it is to move the president off of his talking points, as you can easily see at any any day. And if we can get the president to where he's tweeting and attacking us and litigating with the Lincoln Project and others, as opposed to dealing with the issues of the day, which you won't deal with, or, or attacking the, the Biden campaign, if we can give the Biden campaign some clean air and some time, it'll yeah. help them to win the day and win the week. And that's what you do as a campaign manager. So that's the that's the goal. I mean, he when he reacts to us, he causes it's like a T-Rex. When the T-Rex senses fear or danger or hatred, well, his entire his tail on the, the tail on the T-Rex reacts to that as well. And so it disrupts everything that's going on in the White House and within the campaign. And right. So we're like a harassing force in that manner. Right. And the most obvious example of this that we saw in real time was the ad you made about his West Point speech. He was had a, you know, he was shaking, drinking water with two hands. He could barely get down a ramp. And your ad called out 
and questioned whether he's got some cognitive issue. And uh, it drove him insane. It drove him insane. And he litigated that for a week and a half, culminating in his Tulsa toddler activity at that disastrous rally where for 15 minutes, he litigated how he defeated the ramp as if it was the landing of Anzio or something. Um, <laughs> but also, you know, we ran an ad about his campaign manager doing so well financially while paying off the wives and girlfriends of Trump family members. Um, and the Wall Street Journal reports today that one of the reasons that that guy was fired was because of Trump's anger about what he had seen in the advertising that we placed on Tucker Carlson's silly TV show. <laughs> That's really remarkable. I want to go back to something you just told me, but so you can confirm for us now that there are actually people inside the White House who are helping you, giving you intel or, or at least informing uh, yeah. what you guys do. Yeah, there are people in the White House in the campaign. I, I, this probably happened in the French resistance and during the war where there would be people who wanted to keep one foot in Vichy land and one foot within the French resistance in case the war went either way. Yeah. Um, That's the Aaron Burr, the Aaron Burr uh, (laughs) positioning. Yeah. But yes, we, we, we hear almost in real time um, about some of their communications calls and how the president quote unquote, the president is reacting to, to the political world and and so that does inform our thinking and it gives us the ability to be so agile yeah and of course george conway whose wife's in the white house i'm sure you know he's over the years picked up some pillow talk about how to get into the mind of donald trump Um, he's never betrayed that to us but he he does seem to have his very good sense of uh, how the president reacts to things yeah he kind of pioneered what you guys are doing on twitter you know, trolling Trump and driving him bonkers and having him react to it and uh, turning him into the T-Rex that you mentioned. Yeah, no, George uh, Warrior. You, you talked a moment ago about doing negative ads and giving Biden room to do his thing, right? And really, presently, he hasn't done much with the room. He's just let the room be the room, right? He's He's been doing this rope-a-dope thing, which has been working. Um, obviously, the polls are showing this incredible run, even in the battleground states, in Texas, places he didn't imagine that he'd be able to advance. Um, You know, but at some point, uh, he's got to also try to define himself in the positive side of the ledger, right? You guys do some positive ads, right? Pro-Biden ads? Yeah, we've we've done two. We're we're planning more. Yeah. Those don't get as much traction, obviously, because people really react to the negative stuff. But- as we saw with Hillary in 2016, you can't win purely on negative, right? They did define Trump, you know, from uh, ads that she made that were not unlike Lincoln Project ads, you know, where the small children are watching, uh, you know, Trump on TV and as he says all these horrible things. But uh, do you think that um, you can uh, win just by going negative on Trump? Purely alone? Well, look, Hillary was basically the incumbent in, in 2016. She had been demonized for 25 years by the Republicans, fairly or unfairly. And so she was treated as the incumbent coming on two terms of 
President Obama's administration. And, yeah. and Trump was the theory. This time, Trump is the sad fact. He's the incumbent. It's going to be about him. Now, does Biden, do the Biden folks need to uh, ultimately get out there in a, in a positive manner, probably more than they're doing now? Yes, but I'm loath to criticize a campaign that's running 12, 15 points ahead uh, when we know that the issue is going to be Trump, Trump, and Trump. I know Joe Biden to be a good and decent man, exactly what the country is looking for. He'll bring stability and honor and clean up the toxic mess on aisle six in a way that is empathetic. He loves every American, whether they vote for him or not. And he's been through a life full of triumph and tragedy. And that's kind of that's what we need in the White House now. Yeah, yeah. Let me ask you this. You you've met him. Yeah. You've you've had conversations with him. I have over yes. When I, I mean, worked for John McCain for eleven years, so yes, during that. Time. Yeah, yeah, and they they had a lot of interaction on the foreign yeah foreign affairs. Yeah, yeah. you know, for people that aren't going to get as close as you did to Joe Biden, and you know, as a reporter, you know, when I get up close to somebody and I can talk to them in person, I get a gut feeling about them. You know, I know them pretty quickly. You know, just from interacting with them and getting a vibe. I know that's kind of a in a thing you can't calculate, but what's your sort of what was your immediate feeling for him when you hung out with Joe Biden? Like, how, what is if you were thinking in your mind you're a political consultant, how would I shape this guy in a in a campaign? Like, knowing what I know about him. Well, I mean, I'm what's your believer in in politics? To, as I always said to McCain, people who wanted to like have John more structured, as if that was even yeah. a possibility. I, I, you know, I'd say to thine own self be true. And the thing about Joe Biden is he's a warm man who who loves people. He he legitimately loves people. And I can't think of a better calling for our next president than having one who, in a in a polar opposite way than Trump, loves Americans. A man who cares about America. He he'll care about every American, even the ones who don't vote for him. And he's the right president. At the, he'll be the right president at the right time in our nation. Sometimes when you look at elections, you think, well, how did this guy get elected? And it turns out that that person becomes a great president because it was the right fit at the right time. And we ran, we run two positive ads about Joe Biden. And, and for us, because we're, we're working in a lane of trying to identify him in a way that makes Republicans and independence comfortable with him. We put him, uh, speaking at the Air Force Academy, with fighter jets in the background, making him look as he, as he is, as, as someone who can be a vibrant leader, who can uh, uh, rally the nation, can reassure our allies, and clean up the toxic waste on aisle six, bring stability back to chaos. I think they're doing a good job of that over the Biden campaign. I don't really, I, I, I have no criticism of how they're running the campaign. Um, you know. Well, I, I, let me just throw this in the, you know, to, to give it another turn here, which is that I feel like um, it is working for them, the sort of rope-a-dope strategy of, as we've been observing, you know, hang back, let Trump kind of shoot himself in the foot repeatedly, watch the polls go up. At some point, it's kind of a matter of timing. Right. A matter of how you roll out and when you roll out to define yourself in a positive way and to kind of 
uh, you know, go more proactive, so to speak. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, the pandemic has changed everybody's way that they have to campaign. But clearly, this is not what what Jen and those folks over in Biden headquarters had in mind originally for his campaign, nor nor for the Trump campaign. They're they're you know they're trying to figure this out. It's harder, I think, quite frankly, for Trump, who lives off the energy of those crazy rallies. Yes, it is a matter of timing. It's always going to be about Trump. He's always going to be the issue, no matter what anybody tries to do or say. There may be a moment here or there where the attention will turn to Joe. But by and large, this is going to be about Trump. You know, the timing isn't now in the summer. You know, generally for a challenger in a presidential race, their time to be focused on by the American public writ large is at the nominating conventions and then immediately after. We'll see what happens in these pared down conventions due to the pandemic. But I suspect, suspect, given their fundraising prowess over the last couple of months, you'll see a pretty major burst by Biden and his allies come Labor Day onward. But for now, why fix anything that's not broken? I mean, they're, every day Trump is off message, um, you know, reprising the Civil War. Or, yeah, yeah. But, but let me say this. I'm going to play the role of the bedwetting Democrat, okay? I live in a state of paranoia, right? I'm, I'm afraid of October surprises, right? I'm afraid of the postmaster general, um, you know, uh, manipulating the postal system so that uh, mail-in voting won't work in the okay. states that they don't want it to work in, right? Yeah. Um, you know, on the one hand, yes, you're ahead, David Pluff a couple of months ago said to me, you know, always assume that it's not the polls aren't correct and that it's actually tighter than you think and operate from that point of view. Right. Do you agree with that? I mean, do you, you know, considering all this? Yes. Just let it ride. But on the other hand, be vigilant. Well, I, I, I agree and I disagree. What drives me crazy about Democrats is that they're more concerned about not losing than they are about winning. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And that whole not losing attitude, it's like watching a football game where you have a team that's kind of up, they're really unsure of themselves, and they're get they get they're really nervous and they end up losing the game because they're trying not to lose. Yeah. Here's my here's my, my, my view about this. Trump is bleeding on the edges of his base. The electoral college map has expanded beyond just the core uh Great Lakes states and a couple others to all these other states. Press your advantage now. Go on the attack now. Keep him on the defensive now. You know, convert voters now. Be very aggressive. Stop worrying about what might happen in October and beat the shit out of him now. And don't let up until it's over with. And I think I just it drives me crazy to see the hand ring by Democrats when they're ahead when they need to stop hand ringing and start kicking. You know, it just drives me friggin' crazy. Right. But, well, they have PTSD, John. But but at the same time, yeah, the polls are aspirational. You know, Joe Biden, there's polls out, has him up 15 today. You know, you don't run as if you're up by 15. You run as if you're behind. Even if you think you're up, even if you know you're up by 15, you run as if you're behind and very aggressively. This is Inside the Hive. And now, ladies and gentlemen, as promised by Emily and I, here with the premiere of the new HBO documentary, The Swamp, which comes out August 4th at 9 p.m. Let's have a listen. Mr. President. 
I think we won the day, sir. I didn't run as someone to unify Washington. I ran to change Washington. I had really started to think about a Donald Trump presidency. He could bring the fight to a town that badly needed it. You know, when I first heard that term, I hated it. I said, oh, that's so hokey. If people are going to drain the swamp, like the president wants to do, they need better information about how this place is broken. And that's my mission in Congress. The hierarchy of power in Washington, D.C. is special interest groups, leadership, rank and file members. It's who can raise the money and the special interest groups control the money. The lobbyists, that's the swamp. Members of Congress are expected to pay for their committee assignments. 200,000, 500,000. It becomes a perpetual campaign. You care about health care, the environment. You got to care where the money's coming from. Politics of hate is the most productive technique for fundraising we have. The only quid pro quo is Trump's commitment to drain the swamp. This is Inside the Hive. Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Well, I mean, and traditionally, maybe you could take us into a little bit of the mind of, uh, of a political consultant. You're four months out here, right? And I think there's this sort of, because Trump has upended in the past all the usual political rules, right? People don't feel like they can make any prediction based on anything, so they live in a state of perpetual, you know, um, concern, right? And the, like I said, PTSD from 2016. Um but let's just say that at some point, Biden, there's going to be a convention, right? And he's going to roll out uh, kind of in a, in a more vivid way who he is and what his story is. And there's a lot of opportunity there. But um, given the sort of uh, four months we have going, I mean, do you see an ideal time for him to kind of pivot into a more public sort of proactive positive messaging cycle? Well, some of that is driven by the news coverage. I mean, it, 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 it boggles my mind still that the cable news industry particularly doesn't give Biden or the Democrats fair coverage in, in the amount of time. And I understand why from a business point of view that is. I don't like it. Um, look, I, I think the convention probably, I think he's a conventional, look, all campaigns at the end of the day take on the personality of the candidate at the top. Trump's does. It reflects his value system or lack thereof. And Biden's represents him. He's an old school politician, which I think this country badly needs. He's, he's deeply experienced. He's going to be a stable person as far as the way he conducts things and looks at things. And I think their campaign is going to reflect that. They're going to go about things in a very in a more traditional sense, then the way I'm going to reassure people about what kind of president he's going to be. So I suspect you'll see it at the convention onward. 
And we're, we're not really four months out. We're three months out because of the advent of early voting and absentee voting in many of the key states. Yeah. So, you know, one thing I, I think I've learned over the years, talking to guys like you and Steve Schmidt, Stuart Stevens, um, is that, you know, your job as a political consultant, as a campaign manager, is to tell the story. You know, you've got this candidate, like you said, he has some kind of known quantities about him. But he also seems to have changed from old Uncle Joe of yore to uh, maybe somebody who's more, um, you know, um, vulnerable, emotionally um, kind of uh, empathetic, I guess is the word I'm looking for. I'm just curious, like how you would go about telling his story, given what you know about him. Like, what do you think is his biggest strength going into the fall? I mean, is it it's it can't just be advertising him as a, uh, you know, old Coke, right? You kind of have to sell him into the future, right? How, how do you think about that? Yeah, no, I, I, I think this this country, or at least 65 percent of this country is, is hungry for healing and stability and love and empathy and leadership and problem solving in a workmanlike way. That that's the approach I would take with Joe. That's who he is as a person. He, right. he, you know, that, that's that's exactly who he is as a person. And and that's the approach I would take because it doesn't have to change who he is. It it is who he is. And I, that's and that's also happens to be what the what the vast majority of Americans are hungry for. We've done We've seen focus groups in the suburbs around Detroit and Cleveland and Pittsburgh. Republican men and women, they want the stability. They want the chaos to stop. That's who Joe Biden is. There won't be all this madness when he's president. Yeah, yeah. And and a certain level of humanity and wisdom, I guess, with the age, right? Well, he's been through... Uh, He's been through what almost every American family has been through. They've They've been through great triumphs and terrible, terrible tragedies, and it's impacted him. You know, you look at Trump, nothing impacts him because he's a psychopath. This is Inside the Hive. Let's talk, uh, back up here for a minute. I was, uh, I've was, i been paying attention to this uh, book that's coming out that Stuart Stevens, another right. you know veteran uh, campaign uh, consultant and manager, kind of a colorful guy in his own right. He's arguing in his forthcoming book uh, entitled It Was All a Lie that the GOP uh, had always been a racist party in disguise on some level, that it took Trump's presidency to reveal that. And he's it's kind of a mea culpa, the, the book, and him trying to come to terms with that. Um, do you agree with him? Yeah, I, I, I do. Uh, you know, Stewart is the gold standard in, in politics, as far as his abilities and his and his character, and we're fortunate now to have him. You know, he just recently joined us at the Lincoln Project, and right, uh, I, I think he's right. You know, he's a native son of Mississippi. I grew up in West Texas, where the that was a little bit different. We were closer to Los Angeles than Houston, where I grew up. But yeah, um, no, I, I think that's I, I think that's absolutely right, and, and it's not just on the race issue, although that's bad enough. I mean, what we found was that the party over time hollowed out its principles where we no longer cared about character or rule of law or 
respond, taking responsibility for your own actions, much less specific policy positions. It's kind of like if you were a downstream salesman for Bernie Madoff over the years, you kept seeing good returns, you were well compensated, you didn't really know how bad it was, and then you wake up and see all the headlines, how would you feel about it? That you'd spent all those days in holiday inns and away from your family in Iowa or Michigan or New Hampshire, and then you find out that it was all a lie. I think what Stuart is saying is it, it impacts all of us. And I think there's a that's why we're both angry and righteous about what's happened with Trump and the party, but there's a sense of atonement for all of us, even if we pay, play bit parts or major parts in the party coming to where it is today. Right. Well, so allow me to be contrary here a moment. Of course. You know, <clears throat> I've always known that the Republican Party had a strain of racism. It, it was that was sort of like one of the things that I mean, since the 80s, really. I mean, I grew up in Texas, too, and my memory is of right wing teachers asking me to sign petitions to make English the official language, which was an explicitly racist campaign to disenfranchise immigrant communities, right? In this case, Mexican-Americans. The racism was always there. We might not have said white supremacists back then, but you're from Texas. You know this. Those attitudes were always there, maybe on the margins, but they were always there, don't you think? No, no, of course it was always there. Look, I, I grew up before you, clearly, because I remember those things that came a little bit after I was out of school. And, and look, I had the good fortune of working for people like John Tower and John Connolly and Bill Clements and George H.W. Bush, who opposed those English-only efforts. So I, yeah. But obviously, I knew that was there, and we fought against it. But look, I, look here's, here's an example. In 2000, you know, I was running the John McCain for president campaign against George W. Bush. And we were in New Hampshire. We didn't have very much money. It was kind of a ragtag pirate kind of a fairy tale. But we were winning. And the, and the battle, the Confederate flag was an issue in South Carolina. And, and John was going to go on, face the nation. And, and so Bob Schieffer told me the night before, he goes, you know, just heads up, I'm going to give you a, I'm going to ask your guy about the battle, for the Confederate flag. And it's, you know, it could be a tough conversation. So Mark Salter and I huddle up with John. and. We gave him a weaselly answer, you know? Mm -hmm. I remember. We gave yeah. a weaselly answer, and it wasn't because we didn't agree to come down, but we we, we took the, the the way out that was not right. And, and so we had to, like, really beat up the senator to agree with us. He goes on, and he reads the statement as if he's still in Hanoi. <laughs> yeah. And then he walks out and hands it to me and says, here, Johnny, take this fucking thing now and walk it off and flash forward. You know, ultimately, you know, we win New Hampshire, we lose South Carolina, we win Michigan, but we end up losing to Bush. And my phone rings and McCain calls me, he goes, Johnny, we're going back to South Carolina. Call those boys down there and tell them I'm coming down. You're coming with me. We're going to apologize for being cowards about the flag and we're going to call for it to come down. And yeah. in that span of months, the worst feeling I had about politics was us doing the weakling Weasley thing. And the best thing about politics was going with John to South Carolina to, to do the right thing. And yeah. kind of the history of our party on that. That's right. And he expressed regret about that, in the, you know, later on. Um, I, I um, the revelation that this was going to become 
a more of an animating part of the entire party was, you know, a ways off in, in the election of Trump. I'm not, I can't remember, maybe you can remind me like how much of this was self-evident as he was running, but you know, a lot of these, a lot of standard, you know, veteran, uh, Republican consultants like yourself were still, uh, had not totally understood what Trump was going to become. And I know like yourself, I'm all, it's been reported that yourself and, uh, Fred Davis, another veteran guy actually had talks with Trump in the early that, times. That that's actually, that, that that's bullshit. That's not, yeah. I can't, is that not true? That's not true. I can speak about, I can't really speak about Fred. I don't really know. I don't think so, but it's not yeah. true about me. I never had a conversation with anybody over there. I thought he was a goddamn jackass from day one. <laughs> yeah, uh, but the point about look about race and all that, starting with the Nixon strategy, and then right. Reagan going to Neshoba County Fair as his first stop in 1980, and all the flirtations with the Wallace voters to move them into the party. Clearly, that was calculated. But look, when you get on the back of the tiger, as it says, it's ultimately going to end up not well for you. And so instead of manipulating in a cynical way the uneducated racist voters, the uneducated racist voters end up taking over the party. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So do you feel like in the past when you knew that there was the strain in your own party, it was always self-evident to some degree, right? Because it's, um, you know, when, when you knew that it was taking over, under you know with Trump, I mean, when did that become evident to you? Well, look, when did it become evident that things had changed? Well, I, look, I, I I've been calling for twenty five years for the party to get out of this dash into the demographic box canyon that they're running into. Right. I've been on record about that. I, I, that's why immigration reform was so important in you know when in two thousand and six and seven and eight and 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 all of that. I mean, it was clearly evident that uh, the more nationalistic, isolationist, racist wing of the party was becoming more and more powerful with the advent of, you know, Mike Huckabee's campaign and Newt Gingrich running for president and them doing better than they should. You know, Mitt Romney, you know, was really the last reasonable person that could win our nomination. We didn't know it at that time, but that's clearly the case. The part, the people that I worked for, Bush 41 and McCain and John Kasich, if they were able to come back and run again, there's no party for them to run in. It doesn't exist anymore. So, it, you know, Trump, I'll give Trump credit because of The Apprentice and how that was marketed. He's a terrible businessman, clearly. He's a terrible human being, but he's a marketing genius. And he could see that this hollowed out party could easily be rented by him. And the leadership would self-subjugate just to hold on to power. He he was smart enough to do that. Yeah, he had some kind of instinct there. I remember seeing him at a rally a couple of years before he ran, uh, sort of a Second Amendment rally. And it was so bizarre because it was sort of in a, it was in Albany, New York. And I kind of was like, what is he doing here? You know, I, it wasn't, I didn't, he had worked on this, you know. And he had all these, you know, uh, 
Second Amendment zealots out there, and it, it looked kind of weird because here's this TV, you know, personality, and it was kind of like a, you know, rough and tumble, uh, um, camo-clad group. Um, but you could clearly see that he was tapping into something. And so now, here we are, 2020. You mentioned Mitt Romney. I spoke with Mitt Romney early this week for a, a story I'm working on him. I was thinking about the kind of uh, difficult moral you know, decisions he made this year that, frankly, were in the right on impeachment, marching in the Black Lives Matter right. uh, in Washington. And it just made me think, what's this guy's future in the GOP? You know, what is the future of the GOP? And people have asked, what are the what are the Lincoln Project people thinking about post the election? I mean, if Trump loses, where do they go? Is there a party for them to return to? We've got two ex-Bush guys talking about starting a new party, right? Uh, and maybe, you know, I was thinking maybe the party, some portion of it reforms around Mitt Romney and these other people get, uh, you know, thrown out. But what do you envision happening? Well, I'm look. The, the the talk of creating a new party is interesting. It's really hard to do that, as you know. And the rules are set up uh, in a manner in which that makes it really makes it difficult. I mean, look for us. We said in our op-ed in the New York Times when we announced what we were doing back in December that we were we would work diligently to defeat Trump and Trumpism. The Trumpism part, I think, is just now dawning on the establishment world in Washington that that means them, right? Not just mm-hmm. them. Um, and so if we're fortunate enough to be part of a coalition that dispatches Donald Trump, waiting in the wings right behind him, Tom Cotton, Josh Hawley, Donald Trump Jr. Mm-hmm. Matt Gates. Yeah, there's even some crazy talk about Tucker Carlson, which can't be called crazy now because Donald Trump is president. There's these governors in Florida and Texas and Arizona and other places where because they were worshiping at the MAGA altar and they were afraid of offending Donald Trump, they actually sacrificed the lives of their citizens, literally, in mm-hmm. the crisis. So, I, 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 you know, our intention, Joe, is that assuming that we can help dispatch uh, Trump and slog our way through that period between election day and and inaugural day that we want to help Joe Biden pass his agenda that can reform America, can heal America, the the appropriate ones, and continue to take on uh, in the marketplace these these other MAGA zombies who I'm worried about that they will kind of polish off the edges of the more insane Trump behavior so that they can market themselves in a more dangerous manner, but still mm-hmm. push the white supremacist, nationalist, isolationist, anti-expert, anti-education, anti-science viewpoints that are so dangerous for modern America. Yeah. Well, I'm so cur- I'll am so i be so curious, and I, as I think everybody will, to find out what is, you know, whether the all these, you know, extreme policy ideas and the celebrity cult of Trump, uh, you know, can be separated. You know, if Trump's no longer running or there, can any of these other people kind of recreate that sense of, you know, grievance, populist, angry 
thing. I mean, I see Tucker with his sort of like uh, angry face on cable TV could probably, you know, generate something like that. But uh, at the same time, and, and you know, in the past we would say, oh, well, they'll look into his past and that'll be it for him. And that's obviously not true anymore. But um, what do you think? Tucker Carlson, can that guy actually? Well, could I, he... you know, I don't know. I mean, I worry. I mean, look, the the dangerous movement that was akin to this in 1937, 38 and 39 kept us from getting, you know, into the war sooner and, and doing the right thing. I mean, it, it's dangerous out there. Look, Trump, even if Trump is dispatched, and I think he will be, he's not going to leave the stage. He'll go go into partnership with OAN and do some crazy shit with that and cause problems. I, you know, I have a hard time seeing Tom Cotton become president or nominee or Donald Trump Jr., but the, there's nobody in the part. There's no the Republican Party that I grew up in and that I work for really great people in my mind at least that they were fantastic people. That party doesn't exist. And so the, the early front runners will be people that have no business anywhere near the white house. And could it be Tucker Carlson? Yeah, it could be. I mean, who would have thought Donald Trump would be president? I mean, yeah. Yeah. Kind of frightening. Yeah. This is inside the hive. To speculate about things after the election is almost, it's like sci-fi it at this point. <laughs> I do know that they're not going to go away, they're, you know, right. and, and there's a lot of MAGA leadership out there and DeSantis and Abbott and Ducey and all these other people. And, you know, there's a, I read some consultant in Washington said something like the Lincoln Project's going too far. These senators are hostages, hostages. <laughs> Like they're Patty Hearst or something. And, yeah, yeah. You know, that's such bullshit. They're not hostages. They, right. they participated in this. Right. Well, they're hostages if if on the other side of that is not death, but just power. Well, right? They don't want to lose power. So, well, well, I mean, I think they, a lot of people have been, uh, they had their eyes open to what people will do to hang on to it. How good can it be? It must be pretty good if they're hanging, you know, if they'll do anything, they'll like belittle themselves so, you know, radically I mean, to hang on. If being a U.S. senator is the most important thing in your life, that you would sell out your soul and your country, it's, it's, a, it's a shame. But we can't forget, we shouldn't forget who these people are who did that. Right. John, I want to thank you for coming on Inside the Hive this week. It's been illuminating and uh, hope to have you back later on. Let's, uh, let's find out. Let's watch what happens. You know, it's always great to be with you. Love to be in the in the hive, but uh, look forward to seeing you in Texas maybe sometime soon. I'd love that too. Let's hope for the best. And that's our show this week. I'd like to thank my guest, John Weaver of The Lincoln Project, and of course, my co-host, Emily Jane Fox. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive. You can find those on Apple Podcasts, radio.com, or wherever you get your podcast. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13, especially our producer, Bob Tabador, for their great production work. And thanks, of course, to my sponsors. Please support them the way they support this podcast, and we will see you next week.